Welcome to the Mad Leader podcast. I'm Barnaby Parker. I'm interviewing Vanessa Vallelli today. And I've got to say, I'm really excited because when I first met Vanessa, she was the COO at one of the large investment banks. And she was definitely navigating her way through the corporate world pretty successfully. And she just had this idea for here is the city. And oh, sorry, we are the city. And golly, over 10 years, how we are the city has grown to a network of 120,000 members. And I'm really looking forward to finding out how she's done that. But also, there's plenty more to Vanessa than just we are the city. Vanessa Vallelli is here. What a treat. <laughs> what a treat indeed. I want to know about the Pearly Queen. Okay, Pearly Queen. So tradition that's been in my family probably about 110 years now in total. So Pearly Kings and Queens started as, let me turn off my outlook, sorry. Um, bear with. So the Pearly Kings and Queens started um, was by a young boy, a young orphan boy, um, as I say, late kind of 1800s. And he used to go to the markets that were in London. So obviously no Tesco's back in those days, just big markets, a bit like Smithfield and places like that. And he used to raise money for the orphanage. Um, and eventually, um, to kind of make himself stand out from all the other costermongers who used to wear penny-sized buttons on their suit to show that they were the costermongers, he decided to make a suit full of buttons so that everyone know that he was the one that was raising money for the charity. Uh, for charity. But he also used to raise money for costermongers that had lost their work or they was ill or anything like that. So that ethos of helping someone that was kind of down on their luck. So eventually every single market wanted him. Um, his name is Henry Croft. So what he did is he made a pearly king or queen. Um, and again, didn't have to be a king first. So even then those days where he was forward thinking of every single borough of London. And, the, and there were 28 boroughs of London. It's much more now because we have kind of other places that weren't originally from uh, London. And their job was to raise money for their borough. And somehow my grandfather become a Pearly King City of London and his brother was Pearly King of Westminster. So they're quite grand titles. And then what they did is they made, for, so for example, if you own a borough, say for example, you own Hackney, you could have your children to have different parts of Hackney. So you could have a Pearly King of Shoreditch. You could have a Pearly King of, Ho Pearly King of Hoxton. So my dad was Pearly King of Hoxton. So originally I was a princess of Hoxton. Then my dad become Pearly King of City of London when my grandfather passed away. And then when my, dad started, my dad's feet started hurting, he gave the title to me. So I am Pearly Queen, City of London. Um, who I took part it. in the Olympics? If you watched the opening ceremony of the Olympics in 2012, just behind Windrush, there was a group of Pearly Kings and Queens and they're all my family. So we got to take part in that, which was amazing. That must have been a lot of fun. It was incredible. I don't think my kids quite realised what they were part of. It was a lot of rehearsals in the rain, but when we first saw the, those rings of fire and the chimneys go up, it was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. You know, when Danny Boyle first explained to everyone what his vision was, none of us got it. What do you mean you're going to green and pleasant land and then you're going to take that up and it's the Industrial Revolution and stuff like that? So you, none of us got it. But until you actually saw it there in the moment, you realised that was something absolutely incredible. So, yeah, very proud to be part of it. So I do put on my button suit when I'm asked to. Um, the thing is, a tradition of the Pearly Kings and Queens, you make your own suit. So as a middle-aged lady, my weight fluctuates somewhat. So <laughs> at the moment, I don't think I can get in my skirt. And I really don't fancy sewing on a thousand buttons, but I will do it. It's on the list. 
You know, Vanessa, you've lost none of your charm. When we, do you remember when we first met? I think I you were do. the chief of staff or COO. Or you were something incredibly important at one of the largest investment banks. And you were, I mean, well, I run a recruitment business. So we were talking about opportunities and jobs and, and so on. Uh, and we haven't seen each other for 10 years. And in that 10 years, you have set up this extraordinary We Are The City network, which now has, as I understand, 120,000 members. It's about 100,000 now. Sorry. I think it's about 140,000 on one side, and then we've got 40,000 on the tech side. So, yeah, quite a community. So, are you, I mean, you've become a role model for people all over the place. Presumably, the community is now a global community. I know you've got some corporate corporate, um, affiliates as well. So, I mean, this, this leadership role that you found yourself in, I mean, is this a role that you were always destined for? I think I was always destined to be an entrepreneur when I look back at it. I was talking to someone else yesterday, you know, and I think about it, the first business I ever set up was when I was 10. I used to buy packets of crisps, eat the crisps, shrink the crisp packet in the oven, which I don't know if they're made the same way and you can still do it. And I used to make key rings and sell them for 20p. So that gave me two bags of crisps, which are then it. Um, there's a theme there. Um, so I set up my other business, my other, the second business when I was 18, a uh, training company. So it's always been in my spirit. And I think I also kind of always brought that entrepreneurial thought leadership, if you like, to the corporates that I worked for, you know, innovation, ideas, what can we do? How can we do things differently? How can we kind of break that normal mold that, you know, always do what we've always done? And and that's where I got frustrated within corporate because some of them just weren't quite ready for that. So I never really imagined when I set up We Are The Cities 13 years ago, which was a hobby off the side of my desk, that it would be my job one day I always wished it would because I I felt that fire when I did anything towards women or anything to do with gender or inclusion and diversity and I think I'd run out of steam with with kind of banking I'd been doing I bear in mind Barnaby I started in the city when I was 16. Well, you so, got to the top hadn't you Vanessa there's no further to go. I don't know do you know what I think everyone's definition of success I mean I could have stayed around perhaps gone on to CIO you know who knows uh, what where that path would have led. But when I looked at that journey at that point when I decided to leave and focus on Wales City full time, I just knew that I just don't think I had it in me to continue. I wasn't, I didn't feel that fire that I felt when I was doing other things. And, you know, and also you know, a lot of my work involved travel. So traveling off to the US and India, which is great and glamorous when you're young, but not so much so when you've got kids and a husband that's also doing the same. So there was this kind of choice that I wanted to be there in my kids' teenagers. And giving up corporate, you know, everything I thought I ever wanted as a little girl, you know, always wanted to work in a bank, wanted the big chair, wanted the big title, kind of felt like I don't think I finally got it because I could have gone on to do more. But from my position where I landed, I feel like I'd achieved everything I wanted to achieve in that world, you know, with the energy that I had. And it was time to do something else, time to do something that I feel, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I feel like I've got a lot of purpose, you know, in terms of, you know, the conferences we run and the awards that we run and stuff like that. I get to I get to hand the baton over to thousands of women that are in that position that I was 20 years ago. And I think we've all got that obligation to pay it forward. So, yeah, it's, uh, I love I love my job. It doesn't feel like work. Being an entrepreneur is, is a tough gig, right? Running your own business, I won't lie, especially when you have things like last year. But I think I was always the entrepreneur. I was just stuck in a corporate in a corporate mindset and, a you know, this circle of have to earn the money, whereas 
And again, it was a big risk when I left. I cut my family income in half. I mean, I sat there thinking, what on earth have I done? I had to fix my own printer. I was multiplied. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that that would, cha- that would challenge me too. So your purpose, your purpose seems to me to be all about connecting people, enabling individuals, particularly women, to support one another and beating prejudice. Is that yeah. about right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more to it than that. But that very on the connection side... I love connecting people. I was a bit of a hermit, I think, in my corporate days. I didn't really see the benefit of networking, didn't really ask people for as much help as I probably needed in reflect on reflection. And then I, I decided when, when I set up Way Other City, I'd have to go and investigate some of these networks. And I was petrified to walk into a room, you know, who was I, what was my story, how do you walk up and introduce yourselves? And it was a lady that came to me at one of those events. Bear in mind, the first three I went to, I walked in and walked out. And she said, can I stand with you? I'm on my own. And even though, you know, I'm a confident person and stuff like that, it still felt, it didn't feel right. And anyway, I stood with her and I thought, oh my God, it's this easy. And I think where I'd kind of been so entrenched in my career and so entrenched in my role, and I'd go out socially and stuff. I did love a social drink, um, goes with the culture, right? Um, I hadn't really got to listen to people and find out their stories and I'm kind of naturally a helpful person. And I found that that part of me that wants to help could only ever help if I listened. So by networking, I started to meet people and then those connections come. Oh, I just spoke to this lady. She's looking for a mentor on this. And I just spoke to this CIO or this head of that is, you know, fantastic in that area. I'm going to put them together. And I get great pleasure out of doing that. I still do it to this day. And lots of my emails are connecting people, people trying to grow their businesses, you know, get into certain clients and stuff like that. So that connection is, is very much kind of part, of part of what I do. On the inclusion and diversity side, that's a given for me. That was, you know, at the forefront of what we was doing at We Are The City 13 years ago. It's at the forefront of who I am as a person. You know, growing up in East London, you know, there was a people from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, and we lived very harmoniously. There was a respect for people's difference, you know, when you grow up in, a, in, a, in an area like that. So when I come to the world of work, you know, it was like, why is it not the same here? Why does everyone look like me? I just I just didn't get it. And what frustrates me even further without going down a negative line is I'm still talking about this 30 years on. Come on, society. The, you know, the, these things that need addressing, it's taking us far too long, you know, and that goes for all sorts of things, whether it's race, gender, you know, disability. And it just, it just surprised me. And there's a lot of good hearts and minds out there doing amazing, incredible stuff but we're just not moving fast enough. I love the way you carved your way to the top of the city and then your mission is now to cut, to ensure that everyone else can carve their way there too. I'm not quite sure. Push, the, push, these, push, push <laughs> these white public school boys out of the way and let's clear no, the path for the real talent. Barnaby, it's interesting you say that because it isn't about disempowering one to empower the other because we need the men on the journey, right? We need male allyship. Because it's you guys that are in that position at the moment. And there's so many fantastic men that I work with that totally get it. They get it. Oh, the- hang on a second, Vanessa. I wasn't characterizing myself in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, you know, men are very, very important to the gender parity journey. We need you all. We need everyone on the bus, right? So if we're ever going to achieve equality. So, and I'm probably we'll come on to talk about sponsorship and kind of what that looks like. But you know, there are many, as I say, different individuals that totally get that it's not just women they need around their table, it's intersectional women. 
right? It's pointless us thinking we've achieved what we need to achieve if you have a half a board and still everyone's white, right? And everyone hasn't perhaps come from social and economic different, different backgrounds or disabilities in the room. And this goes for when you're running a business, when you're building product, you know, when you're providing services, it is that diversity of thought in the room. But the issue that we have is that organisations do look remotely the same, especially at the top level. We're not doing enough work at the pipeline level to come into schools and get these kids in and make sure that when they're in, they feel included and they see role models that look and sound like them and they see a pathway that they can follow. So you have to kind of, you know, kind of there's a lot of layers to it rather than just saying, right, you know, we're going to have a few women on our board, you know, a few individuals of colour. Um, and that's it. We've nailed it. It's, it's not about that. It's about what happens next. Where does the journey go from there? How are those individuals supported? So kind of equity over equality, if you like, and looking at everyone as an individual and mapping out what their path looks like to success. So more time, which is why it's slow. Why is it? So I don't, it, it shouldn't be this slow, though, should it? I mean, the, even you know, things like Black Lives Matter. Yeah, have, 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 have perhaps accelerated various causes and made organisations look at you know, study diversity, inclusion, etc., in a way that they haven't before. But it is still slow. It doesn't feel like the changes are, are really happening. Effort, you know, for for these things to happen, and and what you saw there was a lot of grandiose statements, and you know, from companies, and we're still waiting. We, you know, the, the eyes are still on them. They're, we're still waiting for what comes out of that. What are you doing? you know, so that what we go quiet and then someone else loses their life and then there's a big furore again, you know. So I think, you know, they can't put, companies can't take their foot off the off the gas, right, in terms of, you know, their response to Black Lives Matter, to their response to inclusion across the piece. You know? So what, um, so tell me, what responsibility do you think a leader has in an organisation? As far as as, I as far as changed, yeah. to be honest with you, I think, you know, especially with the pandemic last year, I think, you know, if you think about my world of work back in the day, you know, presenteeism, um, you know, the leader told you what you did and, and you just, you know, you responded. And I think leaders have got a much difficult need to have a much different mindset. You know, we don't have that presenteeism. It isn't rule by, you know, rule by sword as it was, which. I think there's more empathy. I think obviously leaders have been able to look inside people's lives and see, you know, the struggles that we have sometimes going to work and managing everything else that we've got on at home, especially prevalent for women when the homeschooling happened last year. So I think from a leadership perspective, it is kind of stepping back a little bit. We've got to get the job done, but the care of your people is paramount. And we all know that. But as I say, sometimes it's looking at an individual level, what each individual leads. And also I think from a leader's perspective, we're still on that continuous journey of learning. You are, I am, you know, and sometimes that that involves you to stop and actually start to listen. Go back to what we did, go down to those grassroots level and find out what, um, you know, educate yourself. Don't look to others to educate you, you know, to, when something happens, it's like, right, I need to learn about that. No, learn about that all the, all the time. So you understand how everyone's individuality and the challenges they face, you understand them as a leader so that when you're putting things in place at work or you're restructuring or programs or whatever it is that you're doing, that you're factoring in your people and what they may need as well. So I just think perhaps less focus on the output. I know we've got businesses to run, but 
it's your people that drive that, those outputs. So well, it's a bit more care. I've heard you speak, you speak passionately about everything, Vanessa. So I've heard you speak passionately about the creation of role models, sponsorship, mentoring, yeah. um, personal branding, et cetera. I mean, do you think that, I mean, let's take the, um, the, t- the, the leader of an organization, whatever sea level or, or thereabouts that they might be, do you think they have a, a, a perhaps more than a responsibility? Do you think they have um, a well, do you, do you think they, they really ought to be creating sponsorship, mentoring, yeah, um, all of that, and it's part of their job? I do. Well, I definitely think, I mean, obviously, it's put, it has to come from the top, right, down to the senior leadership team to make it happen. Where it sometimes gets stuck is in the middle, in that tree call kind of layer, um, where everyone nods, but no one does anything. Um, you know, because again, it's output driven. But I think from a leader's perspective, it is their role to think about, you know, how do we nurture the talent that we have? The war for talent is raging, right? You look, you talk to the millennials and the ones that are coming after them. They don't want to sit in an office nine to five. They want time to go out and do things that they're passionate about. Right? So how do we keep them? So if I was a CEO sitting at the top of the tree, I'd be thinking, how do we keep our, our talent? How do we get ahead of our competitors in that respect? So how do we pass down some of that knowledge? So absolutely, I would put on my SLT that each of them had to have a cohort of three um, people from different backgrounds that they take under their wing. And I'll give you a prime example that I always talk about, a gentleman that I know. He did this. He took three individuals, three women under his wing, and he would take them to his meetings and he would walk into his meetings. He wouldn't tell anyone that they were coming. And he'd be like, these three are my mentees. They're just going to observe today. And that would be it. And they would observe the meeting. Now, what he was doing there is he was showing his commitment to bring on talent. He was opening up those individuals' networks because they were now in the room. There was relationships to be created. And he was showing his support for them. And lo and behold, what do you think happened, Barnaby? The others are like, I need to get me some mentees, right? So they obviously that that kind of cascaded. But another thing that he used to do when he was going into his meetings, non-confidential ones, he would give examples of his work to that cohort. And he would say, have a look at this. I need to make an informed decision based on those papers. You read them as a group and come up with what you would do, right? And then he would go back and he would work with that group to say, well, this was the decision I made and it was based on this. What did you guys come up with? You know, and this is what, you know, and he would give them access to what it was like to be in his shoes. Now, Barnaby, anyone can do that. It's not expensive. It doesn't cost any budget. You know, to just to be under the wing of that individual. And and lo and behold, what do you know about those three individuals? They started to coach and mentor themselves. They built relationships. They built allies. You know, so for a company to be able to put that sponsorship in place isn't difficult. And I think a big key, what some of the things that comes up all the time, and even with the big tech conference that we had uh, recently, and it's something that's in a survey that we've just launched with Ipsos Mori, um, is around accessibility. You know, if these senior leaders are behind doors and people can't access them, they can't access their experience, they can't access their networks. And it's all well and good floating into, say, a women's network event and I'm the senior sponsor and, and, and that, and then you float back out again. You know, you're, you're not seeing that. And I never forget, I did um, a speed networking event at MUFG and the gentleman's name escapes me, but he was, I don't know if he was their CEO, he was pretty high up. And he'd come and join the speed networking event. So it was like about 10 of their senior leaders and they would rotate around these groups of different women and they would be able to ask a question about their experience, um, you know, based on things that they wanted to know. And he took part in that. 
And at the end of that session, he said to me, oh, my God, the talent in this room is phenomenal. Now, he took an hour out of his day to come and see those 30 women and his 10 senior leaders to see the talent in his organisation. And this is my point. It's about time. Right. And I don't know, you know, I should follow up what any of the, did, did what were the repercussions of those women in the room? But I know they made relationships with the senior leadership team. They got FaceTime with the CEO. It's important. And again, these are things that are so easy to do. The mentorship is important. It needs to be there. It's not the be all and end all. And it depends how it's done. So to make sure that the mentor knows what their job is, you know, and how that relationship works, to make sure the mentee is pushing that relationship, to make sure they're getting out of it what they, and, it, and that you have something that can be measured rather than just a talking shop. Do you think that, so if there was one, if there was one point that a leader could start with, do you think oh. that is, it's creating, what is it? Sponsor, it's sponsorship. That's Finding mentees. Focus. Finding people That's, to mentor. Yes. I think well, it's sponsorship first, because again, that is totally different to mentorship. So mentorship, we're going to talk about my experience, your experience. You're going to help me because you've got that subject matter expertise, you know, as a sounding board and stuff like that. The sponsorship where it's different is it's where allowing senior individuals to see the talent pool and then they're in the room that those individuals are not in. So they're almost like an advocate for those individuals. They're constantly looking for opportunities for them. They're thinking about how they can align them with their job, what they're doing, you know, to give them visibility under their wing. So that's the difference. It's not a mentoring relationship. The two things are completely separate. Okay. So sponsorship, that's the number yeah, one. Absolutely. And it's so not anyone listening, anyone listening to this, that they need to go away. And if they're not sponsoring, how many people? What's the three? Pick up that have three. And it's three funny, people. it doesn't have to be a big program that goes through HR and, you know, takes six months to execute. Any one of you could go out and just go, right, senior leadership team, I'm going to do this three or four times a year. I want you to pick me three people that, you know, have a, a skip level lunch, like, you know, what you perhaps have where he can get to meet them, understands what their objectives are, looks in his diary for the next three months, or she looks in her diary um, and says, right, these are the meetings that they can come to, you know. And then, as I say, you know, here's bits of work that I can give them. Perhaps here's an external event that they could come to me with. And the fact that they're in a free also shouldn't make it that uncomfortable either, you know, because they're a, they're, they're a group rather than a kind of individual, because sometimes there's that or favoritism of an individual or stuff like that. Yeah, Vanessa, I know you've got an, a, an OBE for services for women in the economy. I think you're going to be you're going to be dame soon, aren't you, at this rate? This is, um, <laughs> am, I, am I old enough to be a dame? I think you have to well, I don't think, I think you can be, you can be, you'll be in the House of Lords. You should be in the House of Lords. I'm doing an event. You're exactly the sort of person who should be in the House of Lords. Let's park that, come back Maybe to that. Maybe in my dotage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I think House of Lords is the place for you. Now, I've, I've realised that if we talk for too long, people won't listen to us. So I just want to have a, a, chit, a chat about pandemics and the effect that, you know, the future of work and, and the oh, effect yeah. that the pandemic has had. What, what do you think, what sort of world do you think we're moving into? I mean, everyone's talking about, right, it's a hybrid model. So, but, but what does that look like for each firm? So conflicting headlines, you know, of big tech companies saying work from where you want, work when you want, we trust you, stuff like that. Some of them get in are, the office at the same time. Yeah, some of them <laughs> but are I want to see you. Hardcore investment banks are like, oh, this doesn't feel comfortable at all. I want you all back. Um, so 
And I and I think that will play out in terms of who works at these organisations because as much as, I mean, I talked to some youngsters recently. I did a talk for a, a school and some uh, millennials as well. And they're chomping at the bit to get back. They want that experience that you and I had. And quite rightly so. They need to connect with senior people. They need to be visible. This wasn't what they signed up for, right, this home working. And some of them, it just doesn't work for them. They're still with their parents and stuff. I think on the on the flip side, some people have got very used to it, you know, being at home. I mean, all the talks that I do have shifted online. I've realised I can still motivate people looking in a camera. Yes, I want to be in a room with them, and I will be at some point, but we can still do it. So I think in a future world of work, it pains me to say I don't see the city ever returning to the bustle that it once had. And that that ups, that upsets me because, you know, that's my favourite place in the world. But I think from a, a working perspective, I think we've got to watch what happens in September and the people start floating back. But I just see it like, I think it was Barclays and Jess Steely that was saying, you know, that they, they have regional hubs that people can pop in and, you know, meet with their colleagues and, because you need that innovation sometimes, those people in a room. I mean, even from my perspective, I've got a small company, right? But I gave up my office locally and I've built a lovely office in the garden that the girls pop in and out to. And, you know, when we've got stuff to do, then we'll get together. But again, I think it's about trust, trusting your staff. And I think that's long overdue. So, yeah, be interesting to see. Those that do the presenteeism thing, don't do it. The changes, the, the threats, I think, with, with potentially seeing those, if, if, if someone can work from anywhere, then anyone can work from anywhere. And I agree with that. A lot of these people, you know, I'm a, I'm a country boy. I grew up on a farm. And um, in my heart, I'd quite like to be back on a farm at some point. But look at all the people who are moving to the countryside. Yeah. How on earth can that work? And you know, how are they, are they assuming that they're never going to be needed in an office again or they're always going to work a day a week? Or? I mean, so, for example, I live outside of London. I chose to kind of have a bit of greenery for the kids. And just I'm a 40 minute commute outside of London. I can be there within the hour. That works for me. But I have the beauty of fields and stuff like that around me from where I live, which is good for my own mental health. So moving to the countryside, yeah, you'd be in one or two days a week. It's workable. So. Why shouldn't people have better quality of life? Why do we want to spend hours on planes and trains? What a waste of time. You're absolutely right. But back to those, the, the people who are trying to learn that, you know, learn Them. the way that we learned through osmosis by being yeah. next to the people who are doing the job, et cetera. That, that's a difficult balance to achieve it is. through the hybrid model. And that's why Goldman's want everyone back in the office, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I get that because we need to nurture that talent and we need to give them that experience. But I think, you know, if you imagine you've got a team of 10 and we're all in one day or two days a week, they're still getting that. True. And we're still getting our balance. So there is ways of the ways of doing it. You know, I would hate to think of a youngster walking into an office that's empty, you know, that's lonely, that's isolated. They're never going to learn, you know. You, so we just got to get it right. And with companies that have enough people, there will always be someone there. And I think as 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 more kind of seasoned employees, we need to look out for that. So when we are in the office, who are the youngsters? Because we can mentor them, take them under our wing, you know, and just be a little bit more present with them so they get that experience. I wonder if we're, um, at some point, there'll be holograms of Vanessa Vallelli all over yeah. the place. And, oh, um, a hideous thought. <laughs> you think that's a hideous thought? I thought of all those youngsters that could benefit from the, the, the kind of... I just go into the schools, Barnaby. You'll always find me in, in a school doing a talk. You know, I spoke to a, some college. I, You know, I lecture now at Warwick University, which is fantastic. So you're never going to stop me building that pipeline. You know, I don't need to be physical to do that. But 
but I need an army of people doing that. You know, I always encourage people go back to your school, tell your story. There's organizations like Future First that we have a partnership with. There's places where you can volunteer. You know, I like to think that my kids are watching me do that. And then one day when they go out into the world of work, they, they've learned that behavior and they know that that's important that they do it too. And that's so come on. still in all of our, we are the city, we are tech women. We sign up partnerships to make sure they give back. You know, those awards are not given without responsibility. Yeah, you're a force for good. Right. Now on that subject, Vanessa, now in terms of next opportunities and what you're gunning for, I know the House of Lords is waiting, but between now and then, what is it? What's on the horizon for you? Um, do you know what? I don't. I don't. I don't need to kind of. Feel, I haven't got this deep desire to to conquer the world, right? I feel very comfortable in the. Op- I mean, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. The OBE gives me that platform to do more. I will continue to shine a spotlight on women in the industry. You know, I will continue to highlight women in tech. Sixteen percent globally is not enough continue to do work with with women and we'll just continue on what we're doing we innovate all the time so and that's the beauty of having a company that like I've got you know I have an idea it's a reality by the afternoon and magical people like you and the rest of my network kind of help me to make that happen so I think more on the tech side there's a lot of work to be done there supporting as many organizations we can with our platform which is obviously quite large um, me personally probably I'd probably go and sit on another board next year. I think once I've got the bandwidth, the biggest thing for me is writing the next book. Um, And I've tried to do it. It's all mapped out, but this year has just been absolutely potty between work and family. Um, So the the little new garden shed, I'm going to sit in there, hide away over the summer and emerge with Heels of Steel 2 or whatever it's going to be called. How how long did it take you to write Heels, Heels of Steel? Nine weeks. Nine weeks. Well done. That seems very quick. It was incredible, but I had a nine week gap to do it and I knew I needed to finish it by International Women's Day. So, and it was my story, Barnaby. So it's easy. This book's slightly more different because seven years, a lot has gone on the shift from corporate to entrepreneur, the ups and downs of that journey, you know, from, you know, being so bootstrapped, you can't afford a pint of milk, you know, I mean, it's the (laughs) truth, right? So I've just got to pick what I put in there to add value to the reader because I could probably write another four books. So, yeah. That's well, the- Vanessa, it's so exciting speaking to you. I'm so grateful that you have joined my podcast. You're very, very kind. And I just, I wish you the very, very best of luck. And I, I suppose as a last aside, if anyone wants to reach out to you. You can find me on LinkedIn. In very, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, on Twitter. I have various accounts on Instagram. Um, you're probably not interested in my make and do account or my dogs. Um, but you can find me under Vanessa Valley OBE. What what dog have you got? I've got three French bulldogs. Ooh. Are they the ones with the kind of lippy? <laughs> right, that's <laughs> the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> They're the ones with the beautiful flat faces. They're like my kids, <laughs> Barnaby. Oh, I know, I know. They're quite the yeah. They're lovely dogs, aren't they? Lovely, they are indeed. Um, They're my world, my dogs. I've turned a crazy dog lady, and that's another thing. I couldn't go back to London full time unless someone's happy to have three dogs in a meeting. So, yeah, I've well, kind of shot that life. Why shouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. More dogs. That's what the world needs. Yeah, I think climate change is your, is the next challenge for you, Vanessa. I'm quite serious about the um, House of Lords. Have you met my? I've got one of my great friends is. Baroness Burton of Battersea. Oh, I love you know her. No, I don't know her. I know a lot of Baronesses, but I don't know that so, one. So she was the young, youngest member of the House of Lords, a woman, and 
young Tashin, I, I think as a speaker, she'd be fabulous for your network. Do introduce me. I will. She's a great friend of mine. I'm godfather to her son, Eddie. Oh, lovely. And we we, are were, we were on politics um, with 50-50 and a load of female MPs. That's coming up at the end of June well, to encourage more women to stand in politics. Well, you need to get into politics. And the, the most inspiring thing about, she's called Gabby, really. Um, <laughs> the most inspiring thing about Gabby is that when she was growing up, her cousin was stalked and killed by a stranger. Yeah. And she, that was probably 25 years ago. Over the course of her career, she was the private secretary to David Cameron. Then yeah. she ended up being in the House of Lords. And she's just sponsored the bill that outlaws stalking and okay. the Abuse Act. So she's, I'd love to meet her. She's like a superhero. She's Extraordinary. Done. She's amazing. You have to meet her. Me. You know that. I love women. The two of you would just be, you'd, put, you'd be a great, great match. Do introduce me. I'm going to introduce I you. do have no desire to go into politics, I might add. My I think you do really, Vanessa. Politics. You're just, you, you do really. You're, you know, this whole pearly thing is politics of a type anyway. Yeah, you want to be in one of those committee meetings, you're damn right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, um, I will introduce you. Now, who, um, what, who, what other interviewees can you suggest for me? Oh, God, who should you interview? Who do you want? Do you want women in finance? Do you want... Well, do you know what? I, tech? I just want people I really like. I, you know, one of the pleasures of, of of this podcast is it's, you know, whether people listen to it or not, I've had a really fun half an hour yeah. chat with you. Yeah. I'm meeting... A lot of people, don't you? Yeah, There's and it's just a really people. nice excuse. So if you've got some nice someone that's... I want to be inspiring leaders. The mad yeah. pop piece is the made a difference. So someone... Yep, leave it with me. I'm going to have a think. I'll give you a couple, or a few, actually, that I think would be good. One lady springs to mind, Tamara Box. She's incredible. She's American. She's got lots of energy. Um, she's one of the most senior lawyers at Reed Smith. Um, she's their country head, I think, but she's such fun. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll think of people that will bring the energy. Yeah, nice. Lovely. Um, Thanks for having me. Vanessa, thank you ever so much. It's been so it's been so lovely to see you, thank albeit you. on and the screen. We go back beyond Barclays. Uh, we actually met at Aviva. Yeah, no, no. We I didn't yeah. I don't think I mentioned any of that. I wanted to big you up as best I possibly could. <laughs> you did, I didn't want to did I didn't want to talk about whatever you did at Aviva. That's nothing yeah. compared to Barclays, was it? <laughs> yeah, but that's I what I'm looking for, really. Yeah, I wanted to fun. make out you effectively running Barclays before you were 30, and then you, you shifted into this. It? Sorry? You interviewed Stuart Carmichael. He's just taken on a board role, hasn't he? Did you see? Yeah, he's just he's, some innovation lab. I'm not that. I'm not that on top of his um of what's going on at Schroder's. He's he's stepped aside as CTO, hasn't he? Yeah, I don't know whether Nick's still there though. Yeah, I love Nick. I should yeah. get on to Stuart Carmichael. You're right. Yeah, well, I know just because he's just because he, he may want to talk about his new position at uh, some board of innovation. Something like that. I saw it yesterday. Yeah, no, I saw it yesterday too. Yeah. With LinkedIn, yeah? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's on right. my list today. Vanessa, go and save the world. Thank you for having me as a mad 33er as well. appreciate that. Well, you're fab. Oh, thank you. Keep Look in touch. Yourself. Let me know if I can help you. Oh, well, you'll always be in touch. Always right. here. Take care. <laughs> Bye, lots of love. Bye. Bye, love. Bye.
Our podcast is sponsored by Venquist, a tech-driven, team-powered and transparent recruitment firm that gets the people you need quickly and efficiently. Venquist delivers to your requirements. You can find out more at www.venquist.com.